0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Hugo Schechter, founder of the Player Care Group and one of the leading voices in football when it comes to Player Care. Hugo, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you so much for having me. Really excited to to be joining you today.
0: Hugo, um, I suppose where I begin at the start of every episode is asking everybody where did their passion for football originate. For yourself, were you like every other kid growing up, dreaming of scoring goals in the back garden, pretending you are at Wembley, or did you know you wanted to do something else in the game?
1: To be honest, as a, as a young kid, I never liked football. Um, my family didn't like football. None of us watched it. And so, um, yeah, can't say I ever grew up really wanting to play it. Um, I think it probably changed when I was about 11 or 12 when um, my friend brought over a championship manager and uh, I was super competitive with him on like the gaming stuff being the really cool kid that I was and uh, he knew all the football teams he was a Southampton fan so he just knew every every player and I just didn't know it. they were just like blank names to me and so over the summer one year I thought well, I'm going to get to know all the footballers so that when the next foot- championship manager comes out uh, then football manager then we uh I'd beat him and I saw I read like match magazine and watched all the the tv bits and match of the day and that and then actually that's what I actually this is quite good and then uh yeah. So then got into really into football from that. And, uh, you know, then did my coaching badges when I was at school. Um, so I got my level one when I was 17 and then went to America for uni, did some more coaching out there. And I thought that's what I was going to do. But in speaking to coaches, they're like, unless you've played at a somewhat decent level, you know, you're never going to make it as a top coach. You can be a, you know, an okay coach, but they said there's much more upside in other parts of the game. So I looked more into like the business operations and, you know, the logistics side of it, which is what I did um, through uni. You know, I coached and did that at the same time, coach girls, coach coach adult men. And um, my first job out of uni was was moving to America, you know, another American club and, and doing stuff there. So I can't say it was ever what I, I never dreamed of being a player, like genuinely never. I was a terrible, terrible player, but um, I dreamed of like being a manager, I guess, at some point. But uh, I didn't really ever think that would happen. So quite happy with where I am now.
0: And. Then I suppose player care, which it's not only become your career, Hugo, it's actually, you know, become your lifestyle, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. What exactly is it? So for me, I mean, player care is everything
1: that's not football or medical around the first team. Um, I'm specifically in the first teams. Obviously, there's academy player care as well. But my experience has always been with first teams. So, you know, it can be everything from, you know, player relocations to, um, you know, working with the families to, uh, team logistics team communications team bonding um you know even fan mail comes and you know often under my department signed items for sponsors and charities and that kind of stuff so it's really kind of just bringing everything together that's not on the football side so the, you know the, the scouting the, the analysis the coaching or the medical which is you know includes sports science and that as well so everything else is you know kind of is kind of somewhat related to me in, in that so um, but it, but as it's kind of such a new industry, you know, it ch- it's diff- so different at so many different clubs. You know, some clubs do this, some clubs do that, and, and I think it's it's really interesting to see how the industry's kind of evolved, you know, fairly organically over the last sort of 10, 15 years.
0: And when you made your initial foray into the industry, Hugo at Indy Eleven, so to speak, was in more of a multifaceted role as team operations manager. How paramount was? supposed area of player care then you were dealing with anything from kids coming out of college to a world cup winner in Cleberson. what yeah. exactly did that role entail and look like
1: yeah I mean I can't say it was really a player care role it was
0: you know we had 12 staff in
1: the whole organization so it was very much you know getting involved in anything and everything you know we were I was you know doing the international transfer certificates for, for Cleverson when he arrived to you know washing the kit and buying the the drinks you know in, in the local shop so it was really just like you know I was the only and um, only non-football person on the on the football side if that makes sense. So I mean from cl- contracts to yeah travel to kit, you know, we had to build a training ground because there was nothing there. Um you know dealing with the other teams, you know, I mean I even did ticket sales for a little bit, sponsorship. I mean like it, you know, in that sort of organisation, I think it was a great learning experience. I mean, it's the hardest I've ever worked in my life. But, you know, it was a great experience because you're just doing everything. And, and, you know, you became quite close knit because, you know, there's only 12 people there. So there's not like you can like send an email to someone that you don't know. And, you know, it, it's, you know, everybody, and you know, that everyone's flat out. So, you know, player care was such a small part of what I did. You know, it was never... I mean, we didn't really do much for them. It wasn't that we didn't want to, it's just, you know, in terms of priorities, it was pretty low down. So, you know, we tried to make it as, a, as nice an environment as possible, but, you know, I think I look back on what we did there and and, and sort of, from a player care point of view, was, was fairly limited, but also, you know, it's the American second division. It's a brand new team that sort of popped out the ground, you know, in, in a very American style. And so there wasn't just that time or that infrastructure to do it. And, and I think even if they'd said, would you want to do it? I think... To be honest, at that point, you know, I'd rather have had some other help somewhere else. So. But it was a really cool experience. And I think I learned a lot about working on a very tight budget there. And like, you know, how in the Premier League, it's all about performance and about, you know, getting that best, that, the most out of everything. But there it was very much like do the best you can, but with a limited budget. And so, you know, I, I used to, I remember we would like travel to away games and we didn't want to pay the hotel like for the, for the meals because they were, you know, they'd mark it up. So at like four in the morning, I'd go to the local like Walmart or something and buy fruit and, and you know, basically breakfast and then put it outside, like on a bench outside and everyone would come and eat it because it would save us, you know, $150 than paying the hotel to have breakfast kind of thing. So it was just like, obviously in that, we never do that in the Premier League. In the Premier League, we travel with the chef and the nutritionist and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, just night and day, but, but really, really fascinating, you know, place to work.
0: And what age were you when you took on that role? You know, it sounds like you had so many mm-hmm. roles, responsibilities, rolled them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was 23 and, and, like, straight out of uni. And, you know, like, in uni, I'd been quite, you know, American uni is quite different to to, in, to English or British uni because it's very much about the extracurriculars. So, like, I coached a cricket team that went to nationals and ran the team, like, the business side, coached and ran the, the, the men's football team, um, oversaw, you know, a, a group of athletes. It was like a thousand, you know, student athletes and, and lobbied on their behalf, was in student government, you know, wrote for the newspaper, was had a radio show. Like I was super, super involved in that stuff. So like, I felt like I had, you know, the, the level of responsibility um, to be fair. My my budget and university was similar to my budget in Indy 11, because, you know, I think we had a budget for the student athletes. I oversaw of about $400,000 a year, which as a student was pretty crazy and i think my tr- my operations budget for for india 11 for the year was about the same so like uh, probably actually a little bit less if i if i you know i, t- I could t- look it back but you know so i was kind of it wasn't for me such a big jump um, but the one thing i wasn't used to was in uni i'd work my way to be at the top of everything i did so i was always that one like president executive director whatever and then to go and be like bottom of the pile especially as when i started i was team operations coordinator and then got promoted to team operations manager it was really hard to be like you're not making decisions. You know, you're you're just getting things done. And, and in reality, I wasn't a, a decisions guy. I was a was a doer. But um, yeah, it was it was a really really interesting experience.
0: It's not a criticism, but more so, having attended college in the U.S. as you say yourself, and being given a budget of four hundred thousand run on behalf of student athletes. Yeah, that, there was a close approximation there and more of an acknowledgement of your part of what you were actually getting yourself involved to within the 11. But when you look at these football universities in the UK nowadays, given the massive amount of information which we have now in 2021, do you believe they're doing enough or can they be doing more for students to enlighten them as to what they will basically encounter if they were to entail such roles in the football industry? Um,
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what I really expected. Like I, I, to be honest, I got so involved at university that I was so convinced that I was so ahead of my peers. So like I knew that at university graduated in my class, there was nobody who had been more involved than me. And I, I made a point of that. Like I my, my classes. I kind of, you know, I attended them. I did the homework, but I was never that bothered about my grades. Like for me, you know, the, the grades was the, the classes was something I had to do in order to get to be able to do the fun stuff that I enjoyed doing so you know my grades were average and to be fair no one ever no one has ever asked for my my grades or what what degree I got um but I left there thinking like this is what's going to happen is when I graduate I'm going to have Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal and Tottenham all trying to fight over me and I'm going to have like a bidding war and it's gonna be crazy and I left and I was like no one wants me and, and genuinely like I think India 11 was know one of about 97 applications that I did after leaving uni and to be fair like I had four months with not even an interview and I was like I can't you know I need to kind of get a job so I'd actually already had plans with my my dad my dad runs a farm and he was like you're gonna come work for me and I kind of already like resigned myself to going yeah right you know I'm I'm gonna sort of I thought I'd done the right thing in football but obviously you're not getting any bites so going to go work on the farm and maybe coach a local team, you know, somewhere in rural England. And so, and then India, India called, and then it was like, yeah, great, I'll go do that. But it was, you know, I was shocked at the, that thing. And, and I think, I think, you know, whether it's from school or from university, I think some of the students I speak to as well, and I, I know I was the same, you know, they kind of do a degree and they think they know everything. And, you know, even when I left Southampton, I thought I knew everything and I was taking it to West Ham. And then I've learned so much at West Ham. and. Then when I left West Ham, I thought, you knew everything and in the four months I've been running my own business, you know, I've learned a lot as well. So I think, you know, I think it is you you—you you keep learning, but, you know, whether they prepare people, i you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you that. There are some really, really good students that I meet and, and you know, have supported into roles. And there were some absolutely terrible
0: students. But I think that would be the same for everything, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, I suppose then moving on. You had the role at Indy 11 and then what comes next Hugo is taking on the player liaison role at Southampton yeah. obviously being at the forefront of Indy 11 you know helping establish a club from the ground up to moving into a tried and tested model so to speak at Southampton what was the adaptation process like for yourself?
1: I mean tried and tested in the fact the club had been there 100 years sure but player care didn't exist before I got there really so it was also a new thing for them they'd never had anyone in the role they'd have never had anyone really doing it it used to be part of what the club secretary did but you know she was very busy and so it was you know a small part of what she did so in a way i was still sort of forging that new path which I actually i've always you know relished but i think it was amazing that i went from a club you know with with 12 employees to i don't know what we had at the beginning when i started 250 employees i mean the scale of it and but also the interest in it you know in in, in India we used to basically like try and beg people to come to our games and at Southampton we'd sell out most games. So, you know, very, very different experience. Obviously the quality of player was, was night and day. And I think, you know, being a part of something that was so big was a bit of a shock to begin with because, you know, the players that I'd grown up managing or football manager or whatever, I was now working with them. So, you know, it was like, <gasps> it's morgan schneidlin it's you know whoever jose font um you know and it was like oh wow i I, i've heard of these guys rather than indie when other than cleberson i was like googling them to try and work out who they were so for me it was a lot of like there was that definitely a number of like fan moments where i was like oh this is so cool and 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 i remember you know trying to transition from that fan you know that that sort of that supporter of football the guy who always used to wake up early in America and watch all the games and, and knew every fact and, and tried to learn everything and read all the media to then being a part of it and trying to be professional I think that was quite a you know a difficult challenge one that I'm not sure that was obvious from the outside but certainly internally I would be like they were like yeah you know we're going to Man United this weekend and I'm like we used to go to the Atlanta Silverbacks you know and play in front of a thousand people or if that and now we're going to Old Trafford and winning in front of 80,000 people and beating them, you know, at Old Trafford and, and you, you being sat on the bench and you're like, this is the coolest thing. ever. You're like, this is fucking cool. Um, and so, you know, like there were those moments, but I think, you know, I think that's what everyone looks at from the outside is like, Oh, I must be like that all the time. But to be honest, once you've been to Swansea once, you've been to Swansea a hundred times. And like, you know, you know, there are very few moments now that I would say that I really get that kind of like, oh, this is really cool. But at the beginning it was like every day, you know, there was something really cool that was happening. And, and so it was almost very, it was almost too exciting at, at times, but, you know, then understanding I had to sort of, you know, improve my level because at India I'd been in charge of like that much stuff, you know, you know, quite a large amount of stuff. And then at, at Southampton, it was a very much a narrowing of my scope and so you know had to really sort of focus on it and you know be the best i could be at that level and actually then at west ham i was head of department of that little bit so it meant i even did less of it and so you know but you always find a way to keep yourself busy and and, and there always seems to be too much work so yeah it's uh, it was a
0: really interesting experience though fantastic i'd just like to add in that uh, hugo's views of swansea are not representative of the podcast <laughs> but. Uh... <laughs> Um, I suppose one surprising thing you said there was obviously you take a club like Southampton that's been around for a hundred plus years. Yeah but there's been there's been a fight really to kind of integrate a player care department there. Or perhaps choose my words better, the clubs were reluctant to invest in player care or to educate staff around that area. Yeah. From your experience, Hugo, was that more a case of not being able to kind of correlate that with tangible effects on the pitch I think, I think i don't think this is even a past tense thing this
1: is still a current thing that that, that you know we struggle with and, and obviously now i'm a consultant trying to get clubs to do this you know on a regular basis and i think the way it was perceived and probably still is perceived to a certain extent is that it's like well i'm not paying someone to get handbags for wives like that's a nonsense, you know, like, well, we're not doing that. And, or they're paid a hundred grand a week, you know, they can sort their own shit out. And so that's something that I still encounter today. So that's not something that's gone away. And I think you, you you can look at the level of player care across the Premier League in terms of resources, not in terms of the quality of the people, the quality is very good, but, you know, there's, there's still two clubs in the Premier League with no player care at all at the first team level. There's nine clubs with just one person doing it, you know? So, the majority of the Premier League does not have appropriate first-team player care because clubs still don't see the value in it or, or for whatever reason they don't have it. So I think it's not just something that happened 10 years ago. It's something that's happening now. And I think that's why I'm working with clubs to kind of say, look, you know, the, what clubs are interested in is increasing performance or reducing costs. Those are the two things that clubs care about the most. So I'm trying to show that player care can certainly reduce costs, and can probably indirectly affect performance and i'm not going to go and say here look if you if you spend 100 grand on player care a year you're going to win 10 more games like i just can't do that and i wouldn't try and do that but actually in terms of players you know if you buy a player for 50 million pounds he doesn't settle and then you know plays poorly all season and then gets transferred out for 30 million pounds you've just lost 20 million pounds well when you can reduce your risk of that player not settling by making sure he has all the support there, has all the infrastructure to settle him in, he may well not settle anyway, but you've reduced that risk of that happening. So that's what I'm trying to say to clubs is, you know, why would you put this in the hands of agents who necessarily don't have your club's interest at heart? You know, they have their own interest and the player's interest more, but certainly, you know, financially their their interest. So I I always say an agent wants a player to be 80% settled at a club, so he can potentially move him on if he does well. But a club needs a player to be 100% settled. So why would clubs rely on someone who doesn't work for the club who hasn't really got the club's best interest in heart to do quite an important onboarding process for, for, a, for a star player that they're fully financially responsible for? You know they pay this transfer fee, they pay the wages. So if it doesn't go wrong, if it goes wrong, it's not on the agent, it's on the player. So I mean on the club. So yeah, I think it's, I think it, there's a lot of work still to be done in terms of education around player care, and also, you know, the industry as a whole being taken more seriously, which, you know, I'm not sure it is industry-wide. There are certainly clubs that take it more seriously than others. But as an industry, I don't think it's, it's, it's up there yet.
0: Yeah, it's, it's certainly an issue exasperated by the vast amounts of money we see spent on transfers and on wages. But, I mean, is it an issue solely confined to football or, I mean, from meeting other practitioners or colleagues other sports such as rugby formula one Aussie rules do they have the same problems or would Um, you say they'd be ahead of football
1: I think the the thing with football is because of the cash available they can tend they tend to be somewhat lazy in terms of you know it it'll take a lot of work to get a good player care department or or, you know everything operating efficiently whereas clubs can in the premier league certainly can you know oh well, we'll just replace that player he's not very good well he probably is quite good. You know, there aren't bad players in the Premier League. There are better players and, and not, you know, not so good players, but there's not bad players in the Premier League. So why is that? You know, it's easier for a club to replace that player than ask why is that player not performing? What is, what is wrong with either Arsenal or with him, you know, to, to make sure he's not playing? In other sports, they don't have that luxury. You know, you look at, you know, rugby league especially, you know, is known as one of the, you know, the, the best sports in the world for looking after its athletes. Their athletes are paid... a fraction of what footballers are but the clubs don't have the budget as well so you know looking at what you know there's a guy Steve McCormack who works for rugby you know in the rugby league player care and you know I I love talking to him because he he, you know he's such a great guy to speak to but he came he was you know was Scotland's Scotland's rugby coach and then now he's working as as, you know as, as player welfare so but you look at what they do they have to prepare these guys not only for a second career but also really get the best out of them because they have such limited budgets and I think football is is can be lazy in that regard so but the thing is because we have the resources in football it means that we should be able to be above those sports um you know and and it looks different in different things you know you know olympic sport athletes have very different needs and demands and and support needed than than professional footballers so it's it's not a case of like they're bad we're good or 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 the other way around it's everyone needs different things formula one uh, drivers they you know they have a team around them of they normally have a, a trainer who kind of does their meals for them. They'll have like a personal assistant. So like their level of support is much more individualized. And so a player care thing doesn't make necessarily work as well in that environment because, you know, it, it's very much individuals at the top of a team sport. Um, so it, it's interesting, but, you know, I think my experience is solely building football. And I, Yes, I've spoken to people in other sports, but really... Footballs where I think there can be the most growth, but but again, the Premier League is ahead of the rest of Europe in this. So the rest of Europe looks at the Premier League as the the best model, and I don't think the Premier League necessarily has the best model. So you know, I think it's there's there's so much growth in this area that's going to come in the next sort of five ten years. I think.
0: Well, and I suppose unfortunately, when you look at the football industry in isolation, Hugo, I mean, there's such a culture, unfortunately, of players being taken advantage of. Um, be it from commercial sponsors to clubs themselves outside favors i'm sure you're more aware of than i am but um i suppose most crucially you have to establish a relationship of trust and respect from day one so just take us perhaps inside i mean when you're at southampton in west Ham, perhaps the onboarding process of signing a player what does that look like
1: yeah i mean it, it's the trust and transparency thing has always been a center to what I do. And, and I think, you know, it takes, it takes obviously years to build up trust and a second to lose it. So I've always taken that very seriously. Um, you know, when, when a player signs, it's about trying to try to sort the sort of the six or seven main things, which is, you know, house, house or accommodation, bank account, transport, car, uh, phone, visas, English lessons, and, and kids in school. And what we find is after those sort of key things are sorted, then the player is much more self-sufficient and kind of that's what's immediate and then the rest of it can kind of come afterwards. So, you know, we, we try and sort those things as quickly as possible, but also we don't want to just find them the wrong place that they're going to have to move from in three months' time. But it, it could be, look, what we're going to do is we put you into a furnished flat, you know, for, for a couple of months while you get to know the area and then we pick where you want to do with a bit less pressure and you're not in a hotel room with two kids. Um, but yeah, it, it's about trying to get them, you know, hitting the ground running as quick as possible if you're paying someone 70 grand a week as a club every day they take and they're not settled in it costs you 10 grand so there really is time ticking and the money adds up really quickly so it's in your interest to get this these things right as quickly as possible so you know it, it's we try and sort those things and then you know you you move into a different period of player care where it's more you know trying to support them long term but but yeah the ongoing process is, is vital to get it right
0: and then next you have the player care group which you helped establish uh late last year Hugo you know setting up a consultancy amid amidst the pandemic theorizing what you've learned throughout your years in the practice I mean upon hindsight when you were reflecting were you surprised by the knowledge you had amassed over the years because I'd imagine working in football for as long as you have the days become weeks the weeks become months the months become years
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it feels like I've been doing it forever. But in also, in some ways, like, I graduated uni less than eight years ago. And so, you know, and I think that kind of shows where player care is in its infancy that someone who left uni in 2013 can be, you know, again, you know, not, not something I would really try and shout about myself, but I would consider myself one of the leading lights of player care. And, being done that for in eight years from having left uni I think is is quite surprising I don't think you'd get a physio or a sports scientist or something to to have done the same thing so and I think that shows the sort of infancy that the player care industry is in um but yeah you know I don't think I know everything and I I I always love talking to my colleagues at other clubs or in other sports to try and see what they do differently and and you know I try and pick up bits from everybody um but I also think it's you know, we have been able to do really good stuff, here, especially at West Ham. You know, I think genuinely West Ham had one of the best player care departments in the world, you know, not because of my genius or anything like that, but because we had three people who are really motivated, really interested, but also were willing to sort of not just say, well, we've always done that or, you know, what other people doing, but actually let's try something new ourselves. So, you know, we tried lots of new things and we made some mistakes, of course, but I think the the feedback I got from players, managers, and all that was so positive that I knew we were doing the right thing. And and when I look at other clubs trying to kind of borrow my my ideas or you know hire my staff, then that means that we were doing something interesting there and something right. So, you know, I think that looks that that kind of shows how a club with a bit of drive and a bit of focus on this can can really see massive results very quickly. Uh, and that's kind of why I'm doing the consulting thing because. I think I do have a unique perspective. Most players don't switch club, and I've I've run in the player care at two different clubs now, so um, I think I've got a unique pers- perspective that I can offer people. And whether it's through, you know, the the online certificate that I'm running for people who want to get in the industry, or whether it's for you know clubs wanting full consulting services, you know, I think what I'm trying to do is is help other people to to do better because my my ultimate goal is is you know that every player has has a proper support within their organisation, and I think that's really important.
0: Of course. And then, of course, you've mentioned there's certificate in player care and you have numerous other projects which I'm aware of. But when an organization or a club approaches you for the first time, Hugo, at the player care group, what are the, some of the most common challenges which they are facing? I think it, it's just uh,
1: the, the thing I get most is that we want to do something more in player care. We just don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And so they come to me almost with like an open question, not like the players are running riot and it's a disaster. It's just like, we want to do more. We just don't know what we should be doing. Can you help? And so from there, it's me going into the club and sort of speaking to people and saying like, okay, this is where I think you guys are actually doing okay. But this is where I think you guys could have some real benefit, you know, in, in increasing your support or your resources or whatever. So, but I think it's just people it's kind of a buzzword right now with, you know, with, with mental health as a buzzword and, and, and well-being as a buzzword and player care as a buzzword, but people don't really understand what it means. So certainly from player care point of view, I can I can add real expertise to it and give them some options that they can either choose to, to put in or not, but, you know, and try and help them find the right staff and make sure that they've got the right you know, complementing skills in their department because there's no point having three of the same person because, you know, that doesn't really make yourself three times better. So I think it's really just like a curiosity from clubs that we don't actually really know what you're doing and uh, what we're doing. And, and, you know, we could use some advice and
0: it's it's normally pretty open-ended like that. Cool in a way. um, You know, there's that phrase from Peter Drucker, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I was listening to a podcast with Jesse Marsh, recently manager Mm -hmm. of Red Bull Salzburg. And he slightly yeah. disagrees. He believes the culture is part of the strategy. Mm. And I suppose an effect with what you guys are doing at the player care group is for most clubs or organizations formulating that strategy for the first time and then hopefully trying to embed the process. Am I correct in assuming that?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when we the, the clubs that tend to be more interested in player care are the clubs that have that that culture of kind of that 360 support, that that looking at the bigger picture. Um you know, if you've got a club that's trying to save as much money as possible, even though I think we can save for money in the long term, I think, you know, it wouldn't be a natural fit. So I think probably on most times they already have the culture or they're keen to build the culture. Um, But yeah, we try and put in processes and strategies to things that often are done anyway. Like it's, it's just kind of saying like, look, well, why do we do this stuff? Well, you know, we do this, you know, let's do this in a specific way every time. So it's the same, no matter which player liaison picks up the phone or which player you're dealing with. And I think trying to understand the why behind the what is, is really important like why are we doing these things um but you know it's, it's tough because it comes with experience and like i am very very different to the person who joined in the 11 in 20, 2013 so i've evolved the way i operate you know i was probably the strictest i've ever been was probably managing the cricket team at uni and i look back at some of the emails i sent because i've still got my email address and i can't believe how strict i was on these players you know they were one minute late for practice they were dropped for the game you know like, i don't care in premier league you know if someone's a minute late then we just wait for the bus you know we're not going to leave a player behind who's key for the game you know to make a point really i mean some managers might but in reality it's too important so like i've changed massively as a person as well and so you know i think that's something where you can have all the the knowledge and the teaching in the world but actually to have that experience is really really important and that's why It's quite hard to find these heads of department head to player care because you really unless you've really done it before and you really like get it it can be quite difficult but also in the same way if you've been in a club that doesn't do it so well or working in a bad system for a number of years you're going to be preconditioned to have some bad ways of doing things so it's actually really really hard to try and find those those people to run these departments and and, you know, obviously I don't do it myself anymore. I just consult. We're not a concierge service. We're not a external player care department. So it's it's really trying to help the clubs find those people.
0: And I suppose, I mean, the main topic of this podcast, Hugo, is, of course, player care. But given what's happened this week, it would be remiss of me not to add, given your own exposure to high-performance environments at Southampton, at West Ham United, in your own view, is there enough being done for the care and support of staff like yourself or managers? I mean, case in point being we saw earlier on this week how vulnerable and exposed Jurgen Klopp was in a press conference before the Leeds United game. Just being questioned about the European Super League. I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I mean, it's not. I, I'm not gonna go and, and comment on other clubs and organizations that I have had no experience of. I think, from my own experiences you know there was a lot of pressure on staff i think that it is a highly pressurized environment as as a lot of sport is but i think you know that the the problem is i think and it's not really a problem that can be fixed is there's such a supply of people who want to do these jobs that you know there is so many people you know when when i post a job for my two assistants at west ham we had over a thousand applicants and so there's so much choice and, and the kind of, you always get that feeling from clubs or often get that club's kind of feelings from clubs. is like, you're lucky to work here. You know, we could replace you in two seconds kind of thing. So, you know, there's, there's always been this kind of feeling that, you know, we've got to keep pushing ourselves. We've got to keep working harder. We've got to like miss that wedding or miss that birthday or miss that whatever, because if not, you know, I'm going to fall out of favor, you know, and I think players feel the same pressure. Um, And I think, it, you, you look at the, the staff makeups of football teams and you get a real mix of, of young people who kind of haven't burnt out yet. You get then the old guys who have somehow either managed to push through it or found a role where, you know, they're not able, they're not burning out as much. But you really don't see a lot of sort of people in their middle age because most of those people have burnt out and either gone to private practice or left the sport. And, you know, I was always quite worried about leaving full-time football in, in the fact that it's all I'd ever done. Like genuinely, I'd never... I'd never done. I mean, this is the first time I've had weekends off since I was probably 13. So like, I've just never been used to it. And now I'm like, weekends off are great. I understand why people like these. These are actually like have two days every week when no one else works and no one's going to call you and you can just do whatever you want. It's great. But I was always that fear of like, you know, oh, you know, you know, you're going to miss it so much. And like, yeah, I miss bits of it. Sure, I do. But like, I've not missed the games. I don't miss travelling to matches. I don't miss. I don't watch the games. You know, I'll sometimes flick them on if they're on, but I don't even know who we're playing. You know, we West Ham are playing this weekend because, like, it's not part of my life anymore. So, I I don't know. I think it is tough, and I think there's a lot of stress. I think, especially if you're in Europe and you're travelling, sort of Thursday Sunday, Thursday Sunday, that can be really really tough. But at the end of the day, it's a very rewarding environment. Like. There were very few days, if any, that I never didn't want to go to work, and I think I'm very lucky in that regard. And to be a part of something really big that you know affects affects people around the world. You know, I knew that when we beat Man United at Old Trafford, which I think we did twice. You know that, you know that you know it's probably a billion Man United fans around the world really upset right now. And that's you know not that I'm I'm in the business of making people upset, but like I think you've had you know even one percent of a really seismic world event you know which is man united losing at home um was a really really cool feeling you know like a really you know you don't get really that other than politics you know probably in, in sports so it was nice to be part of something that people genuinely care about and, and but you know that feeling only lasts a certain amount of time so yeah i think it's a massively pressured environment for, for staff especially at the top level
0: and for someone like yourself hugo somebody who's so driven and there's been clear progress wherever and Whatever you've done in your life, be it at the 11 to Southampton, being a player liaison officer to heading up the department of West Ham, to now having your own consultancy. I mean, you're only 30 years of age. Is there any end goal? Or I suppose the large question, I mean, what legacy, if at all, would you love to leave behind with the player care group?
1: In terms of goals. I don't know. I mean, I I'm open to anything. And I think that's why I want to do this consultancy is not only to, you know, take a step back. And I think that's been really important to try and, you know, breathe a little bit for the first time in, in, in my working career, because, you know, being on call 24 hours a day for 11 months of the year, you know, you don't have time to really kind of reflect on yourself. So I've enjoyed the sort of four months so far that I've been working for myself. Um, would I go back into a club potentially, but like not really angling for it. Like if it came and it was the right thing then I would do it, but you know, I've moved so many times in my life. I don't want to keep moving, you know, so I'm, we will see, I think, Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite open to leaving sport as well. You know, for me, like this is something that I enjoy. It's something I'm good at, but it's not the be all and end all for me. And I think that's where you can have the most success is when you don't crave it and you don't like, you're not desperate for it. You know, it's just, if it happens, it happens in terms of legacy. Like, I hope that I've been able to change player care for the better. Um, I hope that in the future people will, you know, whether it's people who've done the course and I, you know, we, we hope, you know, we've got one guy who's done the course and and moved to a job already, which is great. We've had a couple of others who've had interviews and it's not, we don't promise anything with the course, but if I can give a couple of those guys my way of doing things and that's taken into other clubs, I think that for me is, is what I want. Um, But you know, just to try and have made a positive impact on a, on a, on something like football would be fantastic. But, you know, I, I'm not too worried about that. Like, it football is very transient and football moves on very quickly. And, and, you know, like, you know, when I resigned at Southampton, the players were like, oh my God, well, how are we ever going to cope? It's going to be a disaster. You know, like I was like, I'm leaving this, you know? And like, yeah, you know, obviously I get messages every now and then, but clubs have been there a hundred years. They're going to be there for another hundred years. Like one member of staff leaving, shouldn't and won't be the be all and end all so like yeah maybe it was a blip or maybe it was a little bit difficult for a couple of months but like you know I think if, if you kid yourself and think that you're going to give everything to the club and the club will give back to you even even if it's not intentional like I think you're kidding yourselves and you know I look at people who've worked at clubs for 30 years and 30 40 years whatever it is and they'll retire and like yeah there'll be a little party for them or something but in 10 years time no will know who they are and I think that for me is not what I want to be. I want to be someone who's got a lot of fulfillment in life and in, and professionally, but not let professional life sort of take over and, and be
0: who you are. So for me, that's really important. Of course. And I suppose finally to close, Hugo, I mean, aside from player care, one thing which listeners may not know about you is that you're very generous with your time in terms of, you know, providing advice and being a resource for those aspiring to enter the industry. Um, right. I first we first came across each other in Birkbeck College somewhat over two years ago now at this stage and at that time you had remarked to me that you reckon you had helped or provided advice to over something like 600 people who wished to enter the industry but I suppose if you were to meet somebody in a lift and per se if they had their elevator pitch with them, they had 30 seconds with you Hugo, what would you wish for them to say? I don't know what I'd wish for them to say sorry, well, just like think, to hear that's even sorry.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, I want to hear why someone wants to do something. So I, you know, I've read a number of CVs, I mean, hundreds of CVs over the years, and I've only ever recruited from outside the industry. I've never recruited someone from another club because I think that I, there were so many great people out the outside the industry who want to get in, who, I've not been given a chance yet. And, and I'm a firm believer in that. If you if you bring someone in, that they will work harder for you and that they will be open to your ways of doing things. So, you know, like my department at West Ham, Barney, you know, he was a linguist, you know, a linguist student who graduated, but he was working basically in a pub. And and Emma was, you know, working at HR for a large corporation and, and helping with women's rugby. And neither of them had ever worked in football before. And I thought, you know, they came through the process and they were so strong, but so warm such nice people, such good people. And I thought, yeah, they don't know football, but I can teach that. That's where I come in. And, you know, now Barney's number two at the player care of Man City, which is absolutely superb. And, and you know, Emma's doing a great job at, at West Ham. So, you know, like I look at that and I think that for me is is what I love is, is to see someone's passion. And that's why I don't really care about CVs. I care about cover letters. I want to see your passion come through. I want to see your warmth come through. I why you want to do it and not because you're a season ticket holder of whatever club I want to see it because you know you want to help people you want to you know be a part of something new what what is it what is it that drives you and I think you know that would be my advice to people is and and that's not going to be the same for everyone because a lot of hiring managers aren't interested in that but for me personally like why are you passionate about this why do you really want to do it and if I feel like you don't have a passion for player care then you won't get in in, in in the interview because there are a lot of people who are just like, well, i will do anything to do, do a job, you know, work in football and i will do marketing or player care or whatever. And I'm like, no, that's not for me. You know, like I want you to really want to do this. So know why you want to do it and be able to talk about it eloquently. I think are really important things.
0: For everybody listening, I'll be sure to link in the show notes below the player care group. And um, Hugo, a huge thanks once more for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely eye-opening to gain insight into your journey today. And I wish you all the success for the future.
1: Thanks, Connor. Appreciate having me on.
0: Thanks, Hugo. No worries.